Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with a partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have those in the show notes. Shadow governments. What they're doing is they're performing governance, but what they're providing to the resistance or insurgency is legitimacy. Welcome back. This is part two of the interview with Josh Bedingfield, talking about his upcoming paper, The Value Proposition of Shadow Governments, which should be out at any moment this summer. When it does become available, I will update the show notes and make an announcement. For this episode, Josh and I continue to discuss his findings and how they are applied. If you missed part one, I recommend going back and checking it out first. But if you insist, let's get started with the show. This is another reason why I really like Kay and Magnuson's theory on social contract, because what it says is you could theoretically have great systems of exchange and really stellar performance and services metrics. But if it's not built on shared values, you're a fraud. It's just increasingly becoming simpler to determine or at least question the motives that were presented. We don't give credit to people's capacity to do that. And we just wave away that there needs to be a measure of sincere shared values. And I'll even go a step further, right? Like Vietnam, the Viet Cong actually knew Right? There's great literature on the fact that they knew that they did not have shared values with the South Vietnamese people, really even the Vietnamese people writ large. Interesting. The concept of communism, of Leninist Marxist communism, does not marry itself well to core, and this is just according to the literature, I'm not trying to speak out outside of my mouth, it just doesn't align itself well with core cultural paradigms in the Vietnamese culture. It actually is directly contrary to them. Concepts like the mandate of heaven, concepts like, you know, the, the importance of local spheres of influence and, and whatnot. Right. The predominance of a desire to own property. And so when the Viet Cong sent their shadow government down into Vietnam, they were actually specifically instructed, like, don't talk about communism. Don't do it. Don't bring up the thing that is going to break our effort to build shared values. Right. What we want you to do is actually play into the values that we can demonstrate are shared. So you had a communist government send operatives to, to, to conduct governance activities in South Vietnam, where a big part of their operation was to distribute land for private ownership. That is anti-communist. Right. It was a core value of the population, so it attracted them. It was a core value of the population. Right. So- right. They took this approach to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide it from you, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to find out what you need, and I'm going to prove to you that I can get it to you. Sure. And then when I take power, that's when I can be like, ah, hey, you know that land that I gave you? We're going to collectivize it. Well, it's something interesting. David Maxwell was just interviewed, and he's talking about peaceful reunification of the Koreas. One thing that he was recommending is that South Korea start mapping the parcels of all the North Korean villages. And then once the reunification starts to occur, 
the South Koreans start handing each of those local farmers and village members the deed to their land and say, you own it now. This is your space. And his theory is, if you do that, you add legitimacy to the transition government, as well as keep the population in place so they don't migrate out. Sure. I'll drop a little thought grenade into the conversation right now. Anybody can find the value in communism, but you give somebody a parcel of land and autonomy over their own ability to make a way in their, their life, communism seems weird. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's, You're weird. Everybody's like, oh, collectivization, we all own everything until you give somebody two acres of land and say, you can shape your way. I offer to the audience that it's, it's, there's not very many cultures out there that there's not value in. Sure. That would challenge that perspective. And, and, and the Viet Cong knew that. Right. Ho Chi Minh and Gap, they knew that. Very smart towards. And that's part of the reason China became such an economic power is that the government started that two-tier system where they had an economic base that was more open capitalism. And then they had the governance side on top of it that said, hey, as long as you want to make money, you know, you want to run a business, you want to own a business, fine, we'll leave you alone. Pay your taxes, pay whatever payoffs you have to do. Just don't get into the governance side. And sure. pre Chi, you know, it worked pretty well. The thing is, when Chi took power, he started to see all that money flow and lack of control, and he started to centralize it. And it has caused China to start peaking economically as well as in their foreign policy outreach, which Hal Brand's fears is going to cause them to be more violent in their future foreign policy actions. And actually, I was talking to John Kassara, who just wrote a book about China where he did about seven indictments on their illicit activities. He follows everything from their fentanyl trade to organ theft and the Uyghurs and slavery and all that. And that's one question I asked him is, do you think that as they peak, will the dictatorship then lean more into fentanyl trade and organ transfers and all of the different illicit activities they have to make up that difference? And I'm, I'm waiting for him to respond, so it'll be interesting. It's a great way to frame kind of one of these little side narratives of, of what I was working on about like just the value of shared values, right, right? Of building a system where the people are bought into the system that you're selling. Right. Yeah. This is kind of revolving around three findings in my research. So the third finding, what is one of the disadvantages of a shadow government? It makes the organizational structure that is best poised to get the population to buy into the resistance or insurgency, it makes them vulnerable because they have to be a forward-facing organization. The Taliban shadow government was partially ineffective because it was actually truly a shadow government. They didn't have an office sitting there. They didn't have a structure available for the people to engage with and exchange with this alternate form of government. So they layered on some like very clandestine insurgency type thought on how they built this up. Mm -hmm. But when you've got a good one, one that's actually building legitimacy, you've got something that looks like the Viet Cong in Vietnam, or I argued in solidarity, the shadow government was the National Coordinating Committee, the NCC, right? These were the offices that made these regional protest movements become solidarity. Sure. But they were offices. They were people that existed there to say, I'm going to offer you a social contract and you can come and talk to me Monday through Friday, you know, eight to five. I'm representing you in this exchange that we have. 
I'm going to give you these things through shared values and performance and services and systems of exchange. And what you're going to give me back is you're part of the social contract. You're going to give me legitimacy. When I tell you to strike in Poland, I don't want you to worry about the government saying don't strike. I want you to go strike at a specific time in a specific place. I want you to demonstrate that you support the movement. And people in Poland did. They had millions of members in the first year of them coming up. And it exploded because this social contract that Solidarity was selling was very real, but it made the NCC very vulnerable. So the return on a shadow government is extremely valuable. It's novel in terms of resistance and insurgency structures. You don't get large-scale legitimacy through guerrilla operations. You can get some. People will support you, but it's just a different type of exchange. Auxiliary and underground, same way. So you build a shadow government to compete with the opposition within their sphere of control. You're going to get a large-scale return on legitimacy if you perform good governance. But it's going to make you very vulnerable because good governance requires you to be present. It requires you to exist in a real place at a real time. So the Viet Cong knew this. Right? They set up operatives as a part of their shadow government that lived in the hamlets and the towns. And guess what? That made it pretty easy for Phoenix to find them and kill and capture them. It made it pretty easy to determine for U.S. forces and the government of Vietnam to say, hey, here's where cords needs to go to counter governance. Right. The problem is it took a service away that supported the core value of those local villages is what you're saying. Yeah, because there's no placement on it. Right. Are you the same thing for like VSO in Afghanistan? So it made it easy for us to determine where it is. So you've got these resistance structures, guerrillas, underground, and auxiliary that so they can go out and live in a barn. You don't need to see them. You just need to know that they're doing their job and you get the return on their function. Shadow governments, they have to exist. They have to be with the people. It makes them very vulnerable. Right. And that's what you saw in solidarity. They, the NCC was super present. They were there, and Jaruzelski gets elected, and he's like, not today. And overnight, thousands of Solidarity members are arrested, to include Kualesa. All of the NCC regional offices are taken down. They're they're shut down. And Solidarity, for the vast majority of its organizational purpose, ceases to exist in a 24-hour period of time. That's how vulnerable a good shadow government makes you. Right. And that's one thing that Alistair Smith, who wrote the dictator's handbook argues is that the current policy of dictators is to kill off any shadow governments to the point where they just, there is no resistance anymore. Putin is a great example of this. He and she have spread this kind of notion around the world, which is why you're getting the problems you are in the car is that they're just being brutal to any kind of resistance that's going out there. Sure, no doubt. And that is one of the two ways that a counter government or an opposition can go about combating a shadow government. Right. I argue in the paper, I essentially say, listen, you've got either a kill capture or a counter governance approach, but kill capture only works if you're really good at it. It only works if you're t- total, right? It's very Tronquier in its approach, right? Right. So Tronquier in French Algeria, he does coin and he does really good coin. You know, great, fascinating interviews with them now. And he's like, no, we just, we just, we killed everybody. Yeah. Right. Everybody. Right. You were associated. You got killed or captured, period. And it was very comprehensive in its approach. It's not very palatable for us in the West 
to acknowledge that good coin that is relying on kill capture ideology, historically speaking, is really only effective if you're total about it. And is it in a long-term form effect because the French still struggle with any kind of cooperation in Algeria and other countries around the North and South? Yeah, great question, right? What's your horizon on success? Is it you know next year or is it 10 years from then or is it 50 years? You may be able to bludgeon yourself into cooperation, but there's a long history. Mm-hmm. And the locals of those nations often tell stories down to their children, their children's children about it until there's a point where the legitimacy starts to creep back out. Yeah, which is why I say, if you're going to go about that approach, just acknowledge how it works and how it doesn't work. It's more nuanced than we're getting out to. I'm more, more kind of being a little soundbitey sure. in, in terms of the takeaways from it. But Well, it's a podcast. You got I'm being bitey. a little, exactly. I'm <laughs> being a little soundbitey. I'm committing a cardinal sin. No, you're not. You're doing a f- podcast. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. But, and the other approach is the counter-governance approach. And that's hard for us too, because when we say, Phoenix, go and conduct your tasks, right? I get these great metrics of performance that are very military palatable. Sure. Enemy-centric operation. I get to tell you how many people I captured. I get to tell you how many people I killed. It makes sense to everybody. I'm not going to say I like it because we like it. I'm going to say I like it because it makes sense. Mm -hmm. If I'm measuring the delta and the variance between how much legitimacy I have taken away from a shadow government, and that's difficult for me to conceptualize, and I've studied it for a year. Right. And I I will tell you that the idea of building a nice little white paper, one-page report for status rep to a commanding officer walking into her office and saying, man, here's what I've done over the last three months of my counter-governance operations. I don't know if I could build that product because it's very nuanced. Right. And you're not going to get very good feedback when you say, it's hard to measure. (laughs) It's difficult to measure, right? But it's partially difficult to measure because we don't have a framework for it. Right. Again, going back to that, if governance is only the activities of the government, then we have these great examples of Cords and VSO in Vietnam and Afghanistan of counter governance. Right? What exactly are we doing? Right. Counter governance is not just strengthening Jiroa or the government of South Vietnam. It's also getting after that shadow government, breaking its legs, metaphorically speaking, and making it less palatable to the population. That's counter governance. But I need metrics. I need measures of performance and measures of effectiveness to demonstrate that there's been a change based off of my inputs into that system. And we can't start building frameworks like that until we institutionally acknowledge that governance is more complex than the activities performed by a government. Yeah. So here's here's the fun question. What you're describing is exactly the same as what it went on in the macro political realm of the Cold War and the U.S., in competition, what what was a system versus system competition in the Cold War? I see resonance also in the global strategic competition that we're doing now with China and Russia and, well, the four plus one. Do you see competition as a form of shadow governance where we're competing for the global markets? And also, do you see a strategy to where the U.S. could be using targeted core values with our partner nations and target nations that we want to build as partners as a way of outcompeting these competitors. 
I'm going to answer your question by not directly answering your question. Oh, thank you. Gonna, Are you running for yeah. office? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you why I'm not going to directly answer it because I do not think that it's what I will say is this. I think it's very important for Army Special Operations Forces and frankly, the Department of State and some other other governmental agencies to get a little bit smarter on how to build, support, and neutralize shadow governments. I think that when they exist, they're very dangerous. Uh, Westmoreland actually said that they might just be more important than the guerrillas back in Vietnam. And he was, I would argue, correct. Because they sell hope to the population. Sure. They'd sell a lot of things, but definitely, definitely a threat. So we need to get smarter on building them. Where I'm apprehensive about saying why we would want to build them, it is hard to to proxy this kind of stuff. I don't think that building a shadow government is the kind of thing that we can send some bobs over and say, building a shadow government today, uh, team. Well, and I'm not prescribing that as well. I'm just saying that- Well, some of the- I say that not, there's humor in it, right? But there's a complicated history with our supportive regimes. You mean Kermit Roosevelt and Iran? I mean, a lot of things, right? <laughs> I'm going to keep it real vague. So it's complicated. Okay. But if we're doing good shared values, it's not us doing it. Where it's really important for us to understand why to do it is when we talk about our partners who are integrating resistance operating concepts into their defense plans. Right. If we look at Ukraine and we say, hey, we've had an investment within Ukraine for a period of time, and a part of that speaks, a part of the success that we're seeing is a byproduct of the investment that we put into there, where you've got these great reports coming out saying, hey, that offensive that came down from the North in the opening days of the conflict, that wasn't really stopped unilaterally by uniformed Ukrainian forces. There were territorial defense units that stood up and held the line at a very critical axis of approach. Right. There was local populations that were throwing Molotov cocktails on trucks and vehicles. and Absolutely. Right. That's resistance. So if we're building resistance concepts into partner and allies structures of defense, then a part of that is acknowledging that in the event that there's a scenario where we can't hold the line, where they can't hold the line, and we've really got to lean into this resistance as defense concept, which is what the rock is. This is, I'm not trying to speak out of turn here. There are nations that are our allies that have really leaned into the rock, and I encourage it. I think it's great. I think it's a fantastic approach to use limited means to to get outsized returns in terms of defending territory. Sure. And you acknowledge that you're going to cede some of that territory then. And if you acknowledge you're going to cede some of it, then we're looking at a scenario like Gluhansk, where all of a sudden it's occupied. And what are the in place to compete with this occupation regime that is in charge of that area? It's a shadow government. That's the organization. That's the resistance structure that we're talking about that is going to compete with that occupation regime. And it's it's saying that out loud makes it very real. The threats to that organization become very palatable when we acknowledge where it will be in play in the conflict that we're all very focused on right now. Right. I say that out loud knowing full well that I'm saying there is a value return for people within Luhansk to say, I'm going to set up shop and I'm going to act on behalf of the Ukrainian government to perform a governance function that is at odds with my occupation. You're painting a target on your back. Right. I don't know how to make that more palatable because it is the reality of the situation. Sure. 
But how cool would it be if we knew that or we built it into the rock ahead of time? How nice would it be? I'm sorry. What do you mean by rock? The resistance operating concept. Okay, thank you. So the resistance (laughs) operating concept. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Not the Republic of Korea. Oh, okay. The resistance operating concept. We're doing a good job or that multinational concept built in cooperation with the Joint Special Operations University does a great job of saying, here's how you build guerrilla and auxiliary and underground type functions in advance as a part of a territorial defense plan. Sure. And we're good at supporting building those because it aligns with our existing doctrine. But there's a return and a function there that I argue is important for us to just equally acknowledge when it's necessary to build support or neutralize. And that's a shadow government. And if we're doing this ahead of time, we're setting these things up ahead of time and helping our partners develop them and integrate them into their defense plans, then it's probably incumbent on us to at least acknowledge that there's a value here. There's a value of saying you're going to do you know, G activities, underground activities, and auxiliary activities. I know, by the way, you guys need to work out however it fits within your system of governance at a national level that if this region becomes occupied, who is continuing the line of governance that is demonstrating that the insert partner or ally state here is still the legitimate authority in this area? Sure. Giving people them. the opportunity to make that choice. Sure. And supports them. Does that make sense? No, it makes total that's sense. That's how I'll answer you. I think it's a great non-answer. <laughs> but I do like the idea of focusing on the core values of nations that you're trying to build better relationships with. And it may not be building a shadow government. It might be just good diplomacy to reach out and, and focus on core values and, and building mutual or shared ideals. So... At the macro global rule of law system, I think that might be a better way of competing against, you know, nations that basically promote corruption and violence to compete with the current rule of law system. Yeah. So I think that might be the attractor that we have just not paid attention to when designing global competition and countermine influence. Yeah, I think it's all tied in. If we talk about this from the perspective of what my finding for shadow governments are offer a really great return for resistances, right? They offer something that other resistance organizations don't. And that's legitimacy. If you build enough legitimacy, you're going to increase your odds of success and short-term that's victory and long-term it's less likely you're resistant once you reestablish control. That's good. Second, they're very vulnerable. If you do them well, they're very vulnerable. And that's just a statement. The takeaway is you need to protect them. Right. They can't just exist unprotected. You have to find a way to protect an outward facing organization. And if we're looking at disrupting them or neutralizing them, then there are two approaches to do it. There's an enemy centric one where it's kill capture, which aligns itself with coin doctrine, kind of what we did in the last 20 years in Afghanistan. And there's a counter governance angle. Kill capture is hard to pull off, but if you do it well, you can just quash it. It's like winning a fight, like overwhelmingly. Don't just get into a fight with the bully, like, you know, you know, got to break his kneecap and he doesn't want to fight you again, right? Like you got to do it really well, really quickly. But since that's kind of hard for us to do, not because it's, it, we're not good at it because we're, we're pretty practiced at it right now. It's because it's hard to do, period. Sure. And it's kind of unpalatable in Western doctrines. I think we should just focus on the counter governance angle. Sure. It's a little bit of a slower approach, but if 
we flip my hypothesis backwards and say, all right, well, if the shadow government gets you legitimacy and legitimacy increases your odds of success and decreases your odds that you're going to face a resistance once you're successful, that hypothesis kind of holds true on counter-governance as well. Counter-governance is meant to delegitimize a shadow government and legitimize the government that you're acting on behalf of. Wouldn't we be able to equally say that we are increasing the odds of the government that we are supporting, of them succeeding, and building legitimacy by encouraging people to buy into that system of governance? It sounds like you're taking the best of the North Vietnamese plan and flipping it to where it can be used for either resistance to a dictator or trying to build a shadow government to help go after dictators and oligarchs, basically. Yeah, generally speaking, just support our national objective. The tactics and strategies that you're discussing would be applicable for the U.S. outcompeting with malign actors. Absolutely, right? And these structures, too, I'm saying, hey, this is what I learned about shadow government. And to answer your question more directly, if, if we're talking about a global competition for influence, like what does great power competition look like? Well, in my opinion, the historical allegory is the Cold War. What was the currency in the Cold War? It was influence. Yes. Who can wield their influence within a sphere of operations or a sphere of the world better? What that really boils, boils down to is legitimacy. The number of people who are willingly obeying a democratic regime versus a communist regime. Right. The challenge with the Cold War, though, is that a lot of countries played both sides. Absolutely right. Because they didn't know who was going to win. So they were going to give good grace to both sides. And then as one became more dominant, they started to switch in support kind of the point is the formula holds and just get rid of shadow. Right. If governments perform governance as non-governmental entities are quite capable of doing, right? Little knock on wood there. If governments perform governance, then the return that they get is legitimacy. Sure. And if they're in competition with something else, then what better way to increase your odds of success than by performing good governance and increasing your legitimacy with the population? Because that's the target in legitimacy. It's population-centric operation. And for every five people that see me as legitimate, that's five less that see you as legitimate. There is a point of time, T, value T, that it's zero-sum. Five people that are obeying me aren't obeying you. That's a zero-sum exchange. It's a very powerful shift in who wields the means, the people, at any given point in time. The interesting point is when they're a swing population and they're actually using the services of both sides to see which one they like better. Sure. And that's where I will acknowledge my research fails a little shortest because I have to use the word support without spending a huge amount of time looking at what the word support means. Is this material support? Is this, I'm going to make a sign out back with a fist on it that says, you know, down to the fascists. Like, what exactly does this mean? What does support look like? Maybe support looks like I just stay home that day and I don't support the government. I'm going to support you by not supporting your opponent. Is that support? And I will tell you, I don't know. I think there's a lot of ways you can support something. I think that there's a lot of different metrics we can look at it. There's material support. There's moral support. Sure. One thing that's striking me about what you're saying, it reminds me of an economic model, the, the startup model that you bring in a new product that disrupts the current market and takes it over. Uber was a disruptive governance system in a way that displaced taxis, which were an older, expensive, and inefficient system, and displaced it with a newer economic model. 
And that's kind of what you're also talking about is bringing in services that better fit the population so that they're so attracted to it that they want nothing to do with the old government and its taxi ways. They want to go with the new hip government with its Uber ways because it's cheaper and it removes the pain in their life of having to get from one place to another with a lot of hassle. Yeah. I mean, you're treading dangerous water that I would definitely agree with if you were actually doing it openly by saying that corporations <laughs> can perform governance, like 100% buy into you. Well, when Zuckerberg went to Congress a couple of years ago, one of the complaints the congressman had is that it sounded like Zuckerberg was representing a population as if he was the government. I mean, he certainly represents a social contract with his users. He does. Just like your homeowners association does. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can't have a chicken coop. What do you get for that? Well, they get onto your neighbor for leaving their trash cans out more than one day. Right. That is governance, and that is shaping. That is a social contract that you buy into. It is supported by fake or real shared values, but depending on your homeowners association and how that's run, systems of exchange and services and performance. That is a governance structure from a, from a non-government entity that you buy into and that you can fight if you don't want to do it. Right. You want to talk about like a really great case study, what somebody should run somewhere that's not employed by the U.S. government? Resisting the HOA. <laughs> what? Like, that's it. I've tried. Yeah, sure. HOA. We have all tried. I tried resisting the HOA. I failed. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I'm going to try soon. I'm about to move. But I'm, but I'm, right? But like resisting the HOA. And what a great way to test some of these structures. What? How does that manifest in terms of my G's or my auxiliary or my underground, my shadow government? Do I have like a, another HOA that just sits there and performs the functions of the HOA? Oh, wouldn't that be a fun social test? Be a Do great. a shadow government HOA and pretty soon you're competing with them on services? Hey, yeah, you're competing with them on services. <laughs> and now that whole zero something makes, makes itself perfectly logical, right? Right. For every Linda and Bill that say, man, you know, the existing HOA, they're not really giving me what I need. I like this other social contract better. I'm not going to pay my dues. I'm going to pay my dues to the other HOA. And I'm just going to violate my social contract. That's a zero-sum exchange of legitimacy. Well, and it would also become a, a court battle. That yeah, I mean, sure. Sure. Of course, every government has its its backing. And HOAs, it's the legal process. <laughs> Absolutely. If you were to launch a, a shadow HOA and have a similar contract with them that bypass the other contract, then it's a court battle. A very interesting one. Yeah. But it makes a lot more sense when we say court battle, right? History tells us that there are international courts and or bodies that will adjudicate the aftermath of seizures of territory, just the same as a local court will adjudicate a shadow HOA. Sure. There was an international body that was stood up in the aftermath of World War II that said, hey, we're going to go back to the way things were. And oh, by the way, things are going to change a little bit in that redistribution. That's no different than, you know, Circuit Court 506 coming in and being like, well, existing HOA, you guys broke your contract. You didn't provide these services like you told them they were, right? But you did do these, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Again, we're on this trail of non-government entities can perform governance. And that gives us great ways to frame this in terms of its return <laughs> and efficiency, Things that we can test, not we, meaning me, but just that are testable is very interesting. Sure. So do you have any last thoughts or summary on the paper that you'd like to put out there? No, I'll just say, you know, if in, in reading the research in total, it will be published on CGSC's digital library sometime at the end of summer. I will send the link once it gets published. If you're interested in 
reading anything else that I've written. There's also another thesis from my time at CGSC on there that I'm very interested in sharing out there. It's a, about a content called Rights as Weapons. It's all that. I'll just say it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed the time. And thanks for, you know, thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. I appreciate you getting on. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes. One CA Podcast.